What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 4, Chapter 9 of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book 4, A Turning. Chapter 9, Two Places Vacated. Set down by the omnibus at the corner of St. Mary Axe, and trusting to her feet and her crutch-stick within its precincts, the doll's dressmaker proceeded to the place of business of Pubsey and Co. All there was sunny and quiet externally, and shady and quiet internally. Hiding herself in the entry outside the glass door, she could see from that post of observation the old man in his spectacles sitting writing at his desk. "'Boo!' cried the dressmaker, popping in her head at the glass door. "'Mr. Wolf at home!' The old man took his glasses off, and mildly laid them down beside him. "'Ah, Jenny, is it you? I thought you had given me up.' "'And so I had given up the treacherous wolf of the forest.' she replied. But, Godmother, it strikes me you will come back. I'm not quite sure, because the wolf and you change forms. I want to ask you a question or two, to find out whether you are really Godmother, or really wolf. May I? Yes, Jenny, yes. But Raya glanced towards the door, as if he thought his principal might appear there unseasonably. If you're afraid of the fox— said Miss Jenny. You may dismiss all present expectations of seeing that animal. He won't show himself abroad for many a day. What do you mean, my child? I mean, Godmother, replied Miss Wren, sitting down beside the Jew, that the fox has caught a famous flogging, and that if his skin and bones are not tingling, aching, and smarting at this present instant, no fox ever did tingle, ache, and smart. Therewith Miss Jenny related what had come to pass in the Albany, omitting the few grains of pepper. "'Now, Godmother,' she went on, "'I particularly wish to ask you what has taken place here since I left the wolf here, because I have an idea about the size of a marble rolling about in my little noddle, 
First and foremost, are you Pubsey and Co., or are you either, upon your solemn word and honour? The old man shook his head. Secondly, isn't Fledgeby both Pubsey and Co.? The old man answered with a reluctant nod. My idea, exclaimed Miss Wren, is now about the size of an orange. But before it gets any bigger, welcome back, dear godmother. The little creature folded her arms about the old man's neck with great earnestness and kissed him. I humbly beg your forgiveness, godmother. I'm truly sorry. I ought to have had more faith in you. But what could I suppose, when you said nothing for yourself, you know? I don't mean to offer that as a justification, but what could I suppose, when you were a silent party to all he said? It did look bad, now didn't it? It looked so bad, Jenny, responded the old man with gravity, that I will straightway tell you what an impression it wrought upon me. I was hateful in mine own eyes. I was hateful to myself in being so hateful to the debtor and to you. But more than that, and worse than that, and to pass out far and broad beyond myself, I reflected that evening, sitting alone in my garden on the housetop, that I was doing dishonour to my ancient faith and race. I reflected, clearly reflected for the first time, that in bending my neck to the yoke I was willing to wear, I bent the unwilling necks of the whole Jewish people. For it is not in Christian countries, with the Jews as with other peoples, men say, this is a bad Greek, but there are good Greeks. This is a bad Turk, but there are good Turks. Not so with the Jews. Men find the bad among us easily enough. Among what peoples are the bad not easily found? But they take the worst of us as samples of the best. They take the lowest of us as presentations of the highest. And they say, all Jews are alike. If, doing what I was content to do here, because I was grateful for the past, and have small need of money now, I had been a Christian, I could have done it, compromising no one but my individual self. But, doing it as a Jew, I could not choose but compromise the Jews of all conditions and all countries. It is a little hard upon us, but it is the truth. I would that all our people remembered it, though I have little right to say so, seeing that it came home so late to me." The doll's dressmaker sat holding the old man by the hand, and looking thoughtfully in his face. Thus I reflected, I say, sitting that evening in my garden on the housetop, and passing the painful scene of that day in review before me many times, I always saw that the poor gentleman believed the story readily, because I was one of the Jews, that you believed the story readily, my child, because I was one of the Jews, that the story itself first came into the invention of the originator thereof, because I was one of the Jews. 
this was the result of my having had you three before me, face to face, and seeing the thing visibly presented as upon a theatre. Wherefore I perceived that the obligation was upon me to leave this service. But Jenny, my dear, said Riah, breaking off, I promised that you should pursue your questions, and I obstruct them. On the contrary, Godmother, my idea is as large now as a pumpkin, and you know what a pumpkin is, don't you? So you gave notice that you were going. Does that come next? asked Miss Jenny, with a look of close attention. I indicted a letter to my master. Yes, to that effect. And what said tingling, tossing, aching, screaming, scratching, smarter? asked Miss Wren, with an unspeakable enjoyment in the utterance of those honourable titles, and in the recollection of the pepper. He held me to certain months of servitude, which were his lawful term of notice. They expire to-morrow. Upon their expiration, not before, I had meant to set myself right with my Cinderella. "'My idea is getting so immense now,' cried Miss Wren, clasping her temples, "'that my head won't hold it. Listen, Godmother, I'm going to expound. Little Eyes, that screaming, scratching smarter, owes you a heavy grudge for going. Little Eyes casts about how best to pay you off. Little Eyes thinks of Lizzie. Little Eyes says to himself, I'll find out where he has placed that girl, and I'll betray his secret because it's dear to him. Perhaps Little Eyes thinks, I'll make love to her myself too, but I, that I can't swear. All the rest I can. So Little Eyes comes to me, and I go to Little Eyes. That's the way of it. And now the murder's all out, I'm sorry added the doll's dressmaker, rigid from head to foot with energy, as she shook her little fist before her eyes, "'that I didn't give him cayenne pepper and chopped pickled capsicum.' This expression of regret, being but partially intelligible to Mr. Fryer, the old man reverted to the injuries Fledgeby had received, and hinted at the necessity of his at once going to tend to that beaten cur. "'Godmother, Godmother, Godmother!' cried Miss Wren, irritably. "'I really lose all patience with you. One would think you believed in the Good Samaritan. How can you be so inconsistent?' "'Jenny, dear,' began the old man gently, "'it is the custom of our people to help—' "'Oh, bother your people!' interposed Miss Wren, with a toss of her head. "'If your people don't know better than to go and help little eyes, it's a pity they ever got out of Egypt. Over and above that—' she added. "'He wouldn't take your help if you offered it. Too much ashamed. Wants to keep it close and quiet, and to keep you out of the way.' They were still debating this point, when a shadow darkened the entry, and the glass door was opened by a messenger who brought a letter unceremoniously addressed, Riah, to which he said there was an answer wanted. The letter, which was scrawled in pencil, uphill and downhill, and round crooked corners, ran thus— Old Ryer, your accounts being all squared, go, shut up the place, turn out directly, and send me the key by bearer. Go, you are an unthankful dog of a Jew, get out, F. 
the doll's dressmaker found it delicious to trace the screaming and smarting of little eyes in the distorted writing of this epistle. She laughed over it, and jeered at it in a convenient corner, to the great astonishment of the messenger, while the old man got his few goods together in a black bag. That done, the shutters of the upper windows closed, and the office blind pulled down, they issued forth upon the steps with the attendant messenger. There, while Miss Jenny held the bag, the old man locked the house-door, and handed over the key to him, who at once retired with the same. "'Well, Godmother,' said Miss Wren, as they remained upon the steps, together looking at one another, "'and so you're thrown upon the world?' "'It would appear so, Jenny, and somewhat suddenly.' "'Where are you going to seek your fortune?' asked Miss Wren. The old man smiled, but looked about him with a look of having lost his way in life, which had not escaped the doll's dressmaker. "'Verily, Jenny,' said he, "'the question is to the purpose, and more easily asked than answered. But as I have experience of the ready good will and good help of those who have given occupation to Lizzie, I think I will seek them out for myself.' "'On foot?' asked Miss Wren, with a chop. "'Aye,' said the old man, "'have I not my staff?' It was exactly because he had his staff, and presented so quaint an aspect that she mistrusted his making the journey. "'The best thing you can do,' said Jenny, "'for the time being, at all events, is to come home with me, Godmother. Nobody's there but my bad child, and Lizzie's lodging stands empty.' The old man, when satisfied that no inconvenience could be entailed on any one by his compliance, readily complied, and the singularly assorted couple once more went through the streets together. Now, the bad child, having been strictly charged by his parent to remain at home in her absence, of course went out, and, being in the very last stage of mental decrepitude, went out with two objects— firstly, to establish a claim he conceived himself to have upon any licensed vitular living, to be supplied with threepenneth of rum for nothing, and secondly, to bestow some maudlin remorse on Mr. Eugene Rayburn, and see what profit came of it. Stumblingly pursuing these two designs, they both meant rum, the only meaning of which he was capable. The degraded creature staggered into Covent Garden Market, and there bivouacked, to have an attack of the trembles, succeeded by an attack of the horrors, in a doorway. This market of Covent Garden was quite out of the creature's line of road, but it had the attraction for him which it has for the worst of the solitary members of the drunken tribe. It may be the companionship of the nightly stir, or it may be the companionship of the gin and beer that slop about among carters and hucksters, or it may be the companionship of the trodden vegetable refuse, which is so like their own dress that perhaps they take the market for a great wardrobe. But be it what it may, you shall see no such individual drunkards on doorsteps anywhere as there. Of dozing women drunkards especially, you shall come upon such specimens there. In the morning sunlight, as you might seek out of doors in vain through London, such stale, vapid, rejected cabbage-leaf and cabbage-stalk dress, such damaged orange countenance, such squashed pulp of humanity, are open to the day nowhere else. So the attraction of the market drew Mr. Dolls to it, and he had out his two fits of trembles and horrors in a doorway on which a woman had had out her sodden nap a few hours before. 
there is a swarm of young savages always flitting about this same place, creeping off with fragments of orange chests and mouldy litter, heaven knows into what holes they can convey them, having no home, whose bare feet fall with a blunt, dull softness on the pavement as the policeman hunts them, and who are, perhaps for that reason, little heard by the powers that be, whereas in top-boots they would make a deafening clatter. These, delighting in the trembles and the horrors of Mr. Dolls, as in a gratuitous drama, flocked about him in his doorway, butted at him, leapt at him, and pelted him. Hence, when he came out of his invalid retirement, and shook off that ragged train, he was much bespattered, and in worse case than ever. But not yet at his worst. For going into a public-house, and being supplied in stress of business with his rum, and seeking to vanish without payment, he was collared, searched, found penniless, and admonished not to try that again by having a pail of dirty water cast over him. This application superinduced another fit of the trembles, after which Mr. Dolls, as finding himself in good cue for making a call on a professional friend, addressed himself to the temple. There was nobody at the chambers but young Blight. That discreet youth, sensible of a certain incongruity in the association of such a client with the business that might be coming some day, with the best intentions temporised with Dolls, and offered a shilling for coach-hire home. Mr. Dolls, accepting the shilling, promptly laid it out in two threepenceworths of conspiracy against his life, and two threepenceworths of raging repentance. Returning to the chambers with which burden he was descried coming round into the court by the wary young blight watching from the window, who instantly closed the outer door, and left the miserable object to expend his fury on the panels. The more the door resisted him, the more dangerous and imminent became that bloody conspiracy against his life. Force of police arriving, he recognised in them the conspirators, and laid about him hoarsely, fiercely, staringly, convulsively, foamingly, a humble machine, familiar to the conspirators, and called by the expressive name of Stretcher, being unavoidably sent for. He was rendered a harmless bundle of torn rags by being strapped down upon it, with voice and consciousness gone out of him, and life fast going. As this machine was borne out at the temple gate by four men, the poor little doll's dressmaker and her Jewish friend were coming up the street. "'Oh, let us see what it is,' cried the dressmaker. "'Let us make haste, and look, Godmother.' The brisk little crutch-stick was but too brisk. "'Oh, gentlemen, gentlemen, he belongs to me.' "'Belongs to you,' said the head of the party, stopping it. "'Oh, yes, dear gentlemen, he's my child, out without leave, my poor bad, bad boy. And he don't know me, he don't know me.' "'Oh, what shall I do?' cried the little creature, wildly beating her hands together. "'When my own child don't know me!' The head of the party looked, as well he might, to the old man for explanation. He whispered, as the doll's dressmaker bent over the exhausted form, and vainly tried to extract some sign of recognition from it. "'It's her drunken father.' As the load was put down in the street, Riah drew the head of the party aside, and whispered that he thought the man was dying. "'Now, surely not,' returned the other. But he became less confident on looking, and directed the bearers to bring him to the nearest doctor's shop. Thither he was brought, the window becoming from within a wall of faces, 
deformed into all kinds of shapes through the agency of globular red bottles, green bottles, blue bottles, and other coloured bottles. A ghastly light shining upon him that he didn't need. The beast so furious but a few minutes gone was quiet enough now, with a strange mysterious writing on his face, reflected from one of the great bottles, as if death had marked him mine. The medical testimony was more precise and more to the purpose than it sometimes is in a court of justice. "'You had better send for something to cover it. All's over.' Therefore the police sent for something to cover it, and it was covered and borne through the streets, the people falling away. After it went the doll's dressmaker, hiding her face in the Jewish skirts, and clinging to them with one hand, while with the other she plied her stick. It was carried home, and, by reason that the staircase was very narrow, it was put down in the parlour, the little working bench being set aside to make room for it, and there, in the midst of the dolls, with no speculation in their eyes, lay Mr. Dolls, with no speculation in his. Many flaunting dolls had to be gaily dressed, before the money was in the dressmaker's pocket to get mourning for Mr. Dolls, as the old man Ryer sat by, helping her in such small ways as he could, he found it difficult to make out whether she really did realise that the deceased had been her father. "'If my poor boy,' she would say, "'had been brought up better, he might have done better. Not that I reproach myself. I hope I have no cause for that.' "'None, indeed, Jenny. I am very certain.' "'Thank you, Godmother.' It cheers me to hear you say so. But, you see, it is so hard to bring up a child well when you work, work, work all day. When he was out of employment, I couldn't always keep him near me. He got fractious and nervous, and I was obliged to let him go into the streets. And he never did well in the streets. He never did well out of sight. How often it happens with children. Too often, even in this sad sense, thought the old man. "'How can I say what I might have turned out myself, but for my back having been so bad and my legs so queer, when I was young?' The dressmaker would go on. "'I had nothing to do but work, and so I worked. I couldn't play, but my poor unfortunate child could play, and it turned out the worse for him.' "'And not for him alone, Jenny.' "'Well, I don't know, Godmother.' He suffered heavily, did my unfortunate boy. He was very, very ill sometimes, and I called him a quantity of names. Shaking her head over her work and dropping tears. I don't know that his going wrong was much the worse for me. If it ever was, let us forget it. You're a good girl. You are a patient girl. As for patience, she would reply with a shrug, not much of that, Godmother. If I had been patient, I should never have called him names. But I hope I did it for his good. And besides, I felt my responsibility as a mother so much. I tried reasoning, and reasoning failed. I tried coaxing, and coaxing failed. I tried scolding, and scolding failed. But I was bound to try everything, you know, with such a charge upon my hands. Where would have been my duty to my poor lost boy? if I had not tried everything." With such talk, mostly in a cheerful tone on the part of the industrious little creature, the day-work and the night-work were beguiled, 
until enough of smart dolls had gone forth to bring into the kitchen, where the working-bench now stood, the sombre stuff that the occasion required, and to bring into the house the other sombre preparations. "'And now,' said Miss Jenny, "'having knocked off my rosy-cheeked young friends, I'll knock off my white-cheeked self.' This referred to her making her own dress, which at last was done. "'The disadvantage of making for yourself,' said Miss Jenny, as she stood upon a chair to look at the result in the glass, "'is that you can't charge anybody else for the job. And the advantage is that you haven't to go out to try on. Hmm. Very fair indeed. If he could see me now, whoever he is, I hope he wouldn't repent of his bargain.' The simple arrangements were of her own making, and were stated to Riah thus. "'I mean to go alone, Godmother, in my usual carriage, and you'll be so kind as keep house while I am gone. It's not far off, and when I'll return we'll have a cup of tea, and a chat over future arrangements. It's a very plain last house that I've been able to give my poor unfortunate boy, but he'll accept the will for the deed, if he knows anything about it.' "'And if he doesn't know anything about it,' with a sob, and wiping her eyes, "'why, it won't matter to him. "'I see the service in the prayer-book says that we brought nothing into this world, "'and it is certain we can take nothing out. "'It comforts me of not being able to hire a lot of stupid undertaker's things for my poor child, "'and seeming as if I was trying to smuggle em out of this world with him, when, of course, I must break down in the attempt, and bring them all back again. As it is, there'll be nothing to bring back but me, and that's quite consistent, for I shan't be brought back some day." After that, previous carrying of him in the streets, the wretched old fellow seemed to be twice buried. He was taken on the shoulders of half a dozen blossom-faced men, who shuffled with him to the churchyard and who were preceded by another blossom-faced man, affecting a stately stalk, as if he were a policeman of the death division, and ceremoniously pretending not to know his intimate acquaintances as he led the pageant. Yet the spectacle of only one little mourner, hobbling after, caused many people to turn their heads with a look of interest. At last the troublesome deceased was got into the ground, to be buried no more and the stately stalker stalked back before the solitary dressmaker, as if she were bound in honour to have no notion of the way home. Those furies, the conventionalities, being thus appeased, he left her. "'I—I I must have a sh very short cry, Godmother, before I cheer up for good,' said the little creature, coming in, "'because, after all, a child is a child, you know.' It was a longer cry than might have been expected. Howbeit, it wore itself out in a shadowy corner, and then the dressmaker came forth, and washed her face, and made the tea. "'You wouldn't mind my cutting out something while you were at tea, would you?' she asked her Jewish friend with a coaxing air. "'Cinderella, dear child,' the old man expostulated, "'will you never rest?' "'Oh, it's not work.' "'Cutting out a pattern isn't,' said Miss Jenny, with her busy little scissors, already snipping at some paper. "'The truth is, Godmother, I want to fix it while I have it correct in my mind.' "'Have you seen it to-day, then?' 
asked Riah. "'Yes, Godmother. Saw it just now. It's a surplice. That's what it is. Thing our clergymen wear, you know,' exclaimed Miss Jenny, in consideration of his professing another faith. "'And what have you to do with that, Jenny?' "'Why, Godmother,' replied the dressmaker, "'you must know that we professors, who live upon our taste and invention, are obliged to keep our eyes always open. And you know already that I have many extra expenses to meet just now. So it came into my head, while I was weeping at my poor boy's grave, that something in my way might be done with a clergyman.' "'What can be done?' asked the old man. "'Not a funeral, never fear,' returned Miss Jenny, anticipating his objection with a nod. The public don't like to be made melancholy, I know very well. I am seldom called upon to put my young friends into mourning, not into real mourning, that is, court mourning they are rather proud of. But a doll clergyman, my dear, glossy black curls and whiskers, uniting two of my young friends in matrimony, said Miss Jenny, shaking her forefinger, is quite another affair. If you don't see those three at the altar in Bond Street, in a jiffy, my name's Jack Robinson." With her expert little ways and sharp action, she had got a doll into whitey-brown paper orders before the meal was over, and was displaying it for the edification of the Jewish mind when a knock was heard at the street-door. Riah went to open it, and presently came back, ushering in, with the grave and courteous air that sat so well upon him, a gentleman. The gentleman was a stranger to the dressmaker, but even in the moment of his casting his eyes upon her, there was something in his manner which brought to her remembrance Mr. Eugene Rayburn. "'Pardon me,' said the gentleman. "'You are the doll's dressmaker?' "'I am the doll's dressmaker, sir.' "'Lizzie Hexham's friend?' "'Yes, sir,' replied Miss Jenny, instantly on the defensive. "'And Lizzie Hexham's friend?' Here is a note from her, entreating you to accede to the request of Mr. Mortimer Lightwood, the bearer. Mr. Riah chances to know that I am Mr. Mortimer Lightwood, and will tell you so. Riah bent his head in corroboration. Will you read the note? It's very short, said Jenny, with a look of wonder, when she had read it. There was no time to make it longer. Time was so very precious. My dear friend, Mr. Eugene Rayburn, is dying. The dressmaker clasped her hands, and uttered a little piteous cry. "'Is dying,' repeated Lightwood, with emotion, "'at some distance from here. He is sinking under injuries received at the hands of a villain who attacked him in the dark. I come straight from his bedside. He is almost always insensible, in a short, restless interval of sensibility or partial sensibility.' I made out that he asked for you to be brought to sit by him. Hardly relying on my own interpretation of the indistinct sounds he made, I caused Lizzie to hear them. We were both sure that he asked for you." The dressmaker, with her hands still clasped, looked affrightedly from the one to the other of her two companions. "'If you delay, he may die with his request ungratified, with his last wish entrusted to, to me. We have long been much more than brothers, unfulfilled. I shall break down, if I try to say more." In a few moments the black bonnet and the crutch-stick were on duty, 
the good Jew was left in possession of the house, and the doll's dressmaker, side by side in a chaise with Mortimer Lightwood, was posting out of town. End of Book Four, Chapter Nine. Book Four, Chapter Ten of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Four, A Turning. Chapter Ten, The Doll's Dressmaker Discovers a Word. A darkened and hushed room, the river outside the windows, flowing on to the vast ocean. A figure on the bed, swathed and bandaged and bound, lying helpless on its back, with its two useless arms and splints at its sides. Only two days of usage so familiarized the little dressmaker with the scene, that it held the place occupied two days ago by the recollection of years. He had scarcely moved since her arrival. Sometimes his eyes were open, sometimes closed. When they were open, there was no meaning in their unwinking stare at one spot straight before them, unless for a moment the brow knitted into a faint expression of anger or surprise. Then Mortimer Lightwood would speak to him, and on occasions he would be so far roused as to make an attempt to pronounce his friend's name. But in an instant consciousness was gone again, and no spirit of Eugene was in Eugene's crushed outer form. They provided Jenny with materials for plying her work and she had a little table placed at the foot of his bed. Sitting there, with her rich shower of hair falling over the chair back, they hoped she might attract his notice. With the same object, she would sing, just above her breath, when he opened his eyes, or saw his brow knit into that faint expression, so evanescent that it was like a shape made in water. But as yet, he had not heeded. The they, here mentioned, were the medical attendant. Lizzie, who was there in all her intervals of rest, and Lightwood, who never left him. The two days became three, and the three days became four. At length, quite unexpectedly, he said something in a whisper. "'What was it, my dear Eugene?' "'Will you, Mortimer?' "'Will I send for her?' "'My dear fellow, she is here.' Quite unconscious of the long blank, he supposed that they were still speaking together. The little dressmaker stood up at the foot of the bed, humming her song, and nodded to him brightly. "'I can't shake hands, Jenny,' said Eugene, with something of his old look. "'But I am very glad to see you.' Mortimer repeated this to her, for it could only be made out by bending over him and closely watching his attempts to say it. In a little while he added, "'Ask her if she has seen the children.' Mortimer could not understand this, neither could Jenny herself, until he added, "'Ask her if she has smelt the flowers.' "'Oh, I know,' cried Jenny. "'I understand him now.' Then Lightwood yielded his place to her quick approach, 
and she said, bending over the bed, with that better look, "'You mean my long, bright, slanting rows of children, who used to bring me ease and rest? You mean the children who used to take me up and make me light?' Eugene smiled. "'Yes.' "'I've not seen them since I saw you. I never see them now. But I'm hardly ever in pain now.' It was a pretty fancy, said Eugene. But I have heard my birds sing, cried the little creature, and I have smelt my flowers. Yes, indeed I have, and both were most beautiful and most divine. Stay and help to nurse me, said Eugene quietly. I should like you to have the fancy here before I die. She touched his lips with her hand, and shaded her eyes with that same hand as she went back to her work and her little low song. He heard the song with evident pleasure, until she allowed it gradually to sink away into silence. Mortimer, my dear Eugene, if you can give me anything, to keep me here for only a few minutes. To keep you here, Eugene? To prevent my wandering away. I don't know where, for I begin to be sensible that I have just come back, and that I shall lose myself again. Do so, dear boy. Mortimer gave him such stimulants as could be given him with safety. They were always at hand ready, and bending over him once more, was about to caution him, when he said, "'Don't tell me not to speak, for I must speak. If you knew the harassing anxiety that gnaws and wears me when I am wandering in those places, where are those endless places, Mortimer? They must be yet an immense distance." He saw in his friend's face that he was losing himself, for he added after a moment, "'Don't be afraid. I'm not gone yet. What was it?' "'You wanted to tell me something, Eugene. My poor dear fellow, you wanted to say something to your old friend, to the friend who has always loved you admired you, imitated you, founded himself upon you, be nothing without you, and who, God knows, would be here in your place if he could." said Eugene, with a tender glance at the other, put his hand before his face. I am not worth it. I acknowledge that I like it, dear boy, but I am not worth it. This attack, my dear Mortimer, this murder. His friend leaned over him with renewed attention, saying, You and I suspect someone. More than suspect. But Mortimer, while I lie here, and when I lie here no longer, I trust to you that the perpetrator is never brought to justice. Eugene! Her innocent reputation!
reputation would be ruined, my friend. She would be punished, not he. I have wronged her enough, in fact. I have wronged her still more in intention. You recollect what pavement is said to be made of good intentions. It is made of bad intentions, too. Mortimer, I am lying on it, and I know. Be comforted, my dear Eugene. I will, when you have promised me. Dear Mortimer, the man must never be pursued. If he should be accused, you must keep him silent and save him. Don't think of avenging me. Think only of hushing this story and protecting her. You can confuse the case and turn aside the circumstances. Listen to what I say to you. It was not the schoolmaster, Bradley Headstone. Do you hear me? Twice. It was not the schoolmaster, Bradley Headstone. Do you hear me? Three times. It was not the schoolmaster, Bradley Headstone. He stopped, exhausted. His speech had been whispered, broken, and indistinct, but by a great effort he had made it plain enough to be unmistakable. Dear fellow, I am wandering away. Stay me for another moment, if you can. Lightwood lifted his head at the neck, and put a wine-glass to his lips. He rallied. I don't know how long ago it was done, whether weeks, days, or hours. No matter. There is inquiry on foot and a pursuit. Say, is there not? Yes. Check it. Divert it. Don't let her be brought in question. Shield her. The guilty man brought to justice would poison her name. Let the guilty man go unpunished. Lizzie, and my reparation before all, promise me. Eugene, I do. I promise you. In the act of turning his eyes gratefully towards his friend, he wandered away. His eyes stood still, and settled into that former intent, unmeaning stare. Hours and hours, days and nights, he remained in this same condition. There were times when he would calmly speak to his friend after a long period of unconsciousness, and would say he was better, and would ask for something. Before it could be given him, he would be gone again. The doll's dressmaker, all softened compassion now, watched him with an earnestness that never relaxed. She would regularly change the ice, or the cooling spirit, on his head, and would keep her ear at the pillow between whiles, listening for any faint words that fell from him in his wanderings. It was amazing through how many hours at a time she would remain beside him, in a crouching attitude, attentive to his slightest moan. As he could not move a hand, he could make no sign of distress. But, through this close watching, if through no secret sympathy or power, the little creature attained an understanding of him that Lightwood did not possess. 
Mortimer had often turned to her, as if she were an interpreter between this sentient world and the insensible man, and she would change the dressing of a wound, or ease a ligature, or turn his face, or alter the pressure of the bedclothes on him, with an absolute certainty of doing right. The natural lightness and delicacy of touch, which had become very refined by practice in her miniature work, no doubt was involved in this, but her perception was at least as fine. The one word, Lizzie, he muttered millions of times. In a certain phase of his distressful state, which was the worst to those who tended him, he would roll his head upon the pillow, incessantly repeating the name in a hurried and impatient manner, with the misery of a disturbed mind and the monotony of a machine. Equally, when he lay still and staring, he would repeat it for hours without cessation, but then always in a tone of subdued warning and horror. Her presence and her touch upon his breast or face would often stop this, and then they learnt to expect that he would for some time remain still, with his eyes closed, and that he would be conscious on opening them. But the heavy disappointment of their hope, revived by the welcome silence of the room, was that his spirit would glide away again and be lost, in the moment of their joy that it was there. This frequent rising of a drowning man from the deep to sink again was dreadful to the beholders. But gradually the change stole upon him that it became dreadful to himself. His desire to impart something that was on his mind, his unspeakable yearning to have speech with his friend and make a communication to him, so troubled him when he recovered consciousness that its term was thereby shortened. As the man rising from the deep would disappear the sooner for fighting with the water, so he in his desperate struggle went down again. One afternoon, when he had been lying still, and Lizzie, unrecognised, had just stolen out of the room to pursue her occupation, he uttered Lightwood's name. "'My dear Eugene, I am here.' "'How long is this to last, Mortimer?' Lightwood shook his head. "'Still, Eugene, you are no worse than you were. But I know there's no hope. Yet I pray it may last long enough for you to do me one last service, and for me to do one last action. Keep me here a few moments, Mortimer. Try, try." His friend gave him what aid he could, and encouraged him to believe that he was more composed, though even then his eyes were losing the expression they so rarely recovered. Hold me here, dear fellow, if you can. Stop my wandering away. I am going. Not yet, not yet. Tell me, dear Eugene, what is it I shall do? Keep me here for a single minute. I am going away again. Don't let me go. Hear me speak first. Stop me. Stop me. My poor Eugene, try to be calm. I do try. I try so hard. If you only knew how hard. Don't let me wander till I have spoken. Give me a little more wine. Lightwood complied. Eugene, with a most pathetic struggle against the unconsciousness that was coming over him, and with a look of appeal that affected his friend profoundly, said, 
you can leave me with Jenny, while you speak to her, and tell her what I beseech of her. You can leave me with Jenny, while you are gone. There's not much for you to do. You won't be long away. No, 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 but tell me what it is that I shall do, Eugene. I am going. You can't hold me. Tell me in a word, Eugene. His eyes were fixed again, and the only word that came from his lips was the word millions of times repeated. Lizzie, Lizzie, Lizzie. But the watchful little dressmaker had been vigilant as ever in her watch, and she now came up and touched Lightwood's arm as he looked down at his friend despairingly. "'Hush!' she said, with her finger on her lips. "'His eyes are closing. He'll be conscious when he next opens them. Shall I give you a leading word to say to him?' "'Oh, Jenny, if you could only give me the right word.' "'I can. Stoop down.' He stooped, and she whispered in his ear. She whispered in his ear one short word of a single syllable. Lightwood started and looked at her. "'Try it,' said the little creature, with an excited and exultant face. She then bent over the unconscious man, and, for the first time, kissed him on the cheek, and kissed the poor maimed hand that was nearest to her. Then she withdrew to the foot of the bed. Some two hours afterwards, Mortimer Lightwood saw his consciousness come back, and instantly, but very tranquilly, bent over him. "'Don't speak, Eugene.' Do no more than look at me and listen to me. You follow what I say? He moved his head in assent. I am going on from the point where we broke off. Is the word we should soon have come to, is it, wife? Oh, God bless you, Mortimer. Hush. Don't be agitated. Don't speak. Hear me, dear Eugene. Your mind will be more at peace, lying here, if you make Lizzie your wife. You wish me to speak to her, and tell her so, and entreat her to be your wife. You ask her to kneel at this bedside and be married to you, that your reparation may be complete. Is that so? Yes. God bless you. Yes. It shall be done, Eugene. Trust it to me. I shall have to go away for some few hours, to give effect to your wishes. You, you see this is unavoidable. Dear friend, I said so. True. But I had not the clue then. How do you think I got it? Glancing wistfully around, Eugene saw Miss Jenny at the foot of the bed, looking at him with her elbows on the bed and her head upon her hands. There was a trace of his whimsical air upon him, as he tried to smile at her. "'Yes, indeed,' said Lightwood. "'The discovery was hers. Observe, my dear Eugene, while I am away, you will know that I have discharged my trust with Lizzie, by finding her here, in my present place at your bedside, to leave you no more. A final word before I go. This is the right course of a true man, Eugene. 
and I solemnly believe with all my soul that if Providence should mercifully restore you to us, you will be blessed with a noble wife in the preserver of your life, whom you will dearly love. Amen. I am sure of that. But I shall not come through it, Mortimer. You will not be the less hopeful or less strong for this, Eugene. No. Touch my face with yours, in case I should not hold out till you come back. I love you, Mortimer. Don't be uneasy for me while you are gone. If my dear brave girl will take me, I feel persuaded that I shall live long enough to be married, dear fellow." Miss Jenny gave up altogether on this parting taking place between the friends, and sitting with her back towards the bed in the bower made by her bright hair, wept heartily, though noiselessly. Mortimer Lightwood was soon gone. As the evening light lengthened, the heavy reflections of the trees in the river, another figure came with a soft step into the sick room. "'Is he conscious?' asked the little dressmaker, as the figure took its station by the pillow, for Jenny had given place to it immediately, and could not see the sufferer's face in the dark room from her new and removed position. "'He is conscious, Jenny,' murmured Eugene for himself. "'He knows his wife. End of Book 4, Chapter 10《Book 4, Chapter 11 of Our Mutual Friend》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens Book Four, A Turning, Chapter Eleven. Effect is given to the doll's dressmaker's discovery. Mrs. John Rokesmith sat at needlework in her neat little room, beside a basket of neat little articles of clothing, which presented so much of the appearance of being in the doll's dressmaker's way of business, that one might have supposed she was going to set up in opposition to Miss Wren. Whether the complete British family housewife had imparted sage counsel anent them did not appear, but probably not, as that cloudy oracle was nowhere visible. For certain, however, Mrs. John Rokesmith stitched at them with so dexterous a hand that she must have taken lessons of somebody. Love is in all things a most wonderful teacher, and perhaps love, from a pictorial point of view, with nothing on but a thimble, had been teaching this branch of needlework to Mrs. John Rokesmith. It was near John's time for coming home, but as Mrs. John was desirous to finish a special triumph of her skill before dinner, she did not go out to meet him. Placidly, though rather consequentially smiling, she sat stitching away with a regular sound, like a sort of dimpled little charming Dresden china clock by the very best maker. A knock at the door, and a ring at the bell. Not John, or Bella would have flown out to meet him. Then who? if not John. Bella was asking herself the question, when that fluttering little fool of a servant fluttered in, saying, oh, Mr. Lightwood!' "'Oh, good gracious!' 
Bella had but time to throw a handkerchief over the basket when Mr. Lightwood made his bow. There was something amiss with Mr. Lightwood, for he was strangely grave and looked ill. With a brief reference to the happy time when it had been his privilege to know Mrs. Rokesmith as Miss Wilfer, Mr. Lightwood explained what was amiss with him and why he came. He came bearing Lizzie Hexam's earnest hope that Mrs. John Rokesmith would see her married. Bella was so flattered by the request, and by the short narrative he had feelingly given her, that there never was a more timely smelling-bottle than John's knock. "'My husband,' said Bella, "'I bring him in.' But that turned out to be more easily said than done, for the instant she mentioned Mr. Lightwood's name, John stopped, with his hand upon the lock of the room door. "'Come upstairs, my darling.' Bella was amazed by the flush in his face, and by his sudden turning away. "'What can it mean?' she thought, as she accompanied him upstairs. "'Now, my life,' said John, taking her on his knee, "'tell me all about it.' All very well to say, tell me all about it, but John was very much confused. His attention evidently trailed off now and then, even while Bella told him all about it. Yet she knew that he took a great interest in Lizzie and her fortunes. What could it mean? "'Will you come to this marriage with me, John, dear?' "'No, my love, I can't do that.' "'You can't do that, John?' "'No, my dear, it's uh, quite out of the question. Not to be thought of.' "'Am I to go alone, John?' "'No, my dear, you will go with Mr. Lightwood.' "'Don't you think it's time you went down to Mr. Lightwood, John, dear?' Bella insinuated. "'My darling, it's almost time you went, but I must ask you to excuse me to him altogether.' "'You—you you never mean, John, dear, that you're not going to see him? Why, he knows you have come home. I told him so.' "'That's a little unfortunate, but it can't be helped. Unfortunate or fortunate, I positively cannot see him, my love.' Bella cast about in her mind what could be his reason for this unaccountable behaviour as she sat on his knee, looking at him in astonishment and pouting a little, a weak reason presented itself. "'John, dear, you never can be jealous of Mr. Lightwood.' <laughs> "'Why, my precious child,' returned her husband, laughing outright, "'how could I be jealous of him? Why should I be jealous of him?' "'Because you know, John,' pursued Bella, pouting a little more, though he did rather admire me once, it was not my fault. "'It was your fault that I admired you,' returned her husband, with a look of pride in her. "'And why not your fault that he admired you? But I, jealous on that account? Why, I must go distracted for life, if I turn jealous of every one who used to find my wife beautiful and winning.' "'I am half angry with you, John, dear.' said Bella, laughing a little, and half-pleased with you, because you are such a stupid old fellow, and yet you say nice things as if you meant them. Don't be mysterious, sir. What harm do you know of Mr. Lightwood? None, my love. What has he ever done to you, John? He has never done anything to me, my dear. I know no more against him than I know against Mr. Rayburn. He has never done anything to me, neither has Mr. Rayburn, and yet I have exactly the same objection to both of them. "'Oh, John!' retorted Bella, as if she were giving him up for a bad job, as she used to give up herself. 
you are nothing better than a sphinx, and a married sphinx isn't a, isn't a nice confidential husband," said Bella in a tone of injury. Bella, my life," said John Rokesmith, touching her cheek with a grave smile as she cast down her eyes and pouted again. "Look at me. I want to speak to you." "'In earnest, Bluebeard of the Secret Chamber?' asked Bella, clearing her pretty face. "'In earnest, and I confess to the Secret Chamber. Don't you remember that you asked me not to declare what I thought of your higher qualities until you had been tried?' "'Yes, John, dear, and I fully meant it, and I fully mean it.' "'The time will come, my darling. I am no prophet, but I say so, when you will be tried.' The time will come, I think, when you will undergo a trial through which you will never pass quite triumphantly for me, unless you can put perfect faith in me. Then you may be sure of me, John, dear, for I can put perfect faith in you, and I do, and I always, always will. Don't judge me by a little thing like this, John. In little things I am a little thing myself, I always was, but in great things I hope not. I don't mean to boast, John, dear, but I hope not." He was even better convinced of the truth of what she said than she was, as he felt her loving arms about him. If the golden dustman's riches had been his to stake, he would have staked them to the last farthing on the fidelity through good and evil of her affectionate and trusting heart. "'Now I'll go down to—and go away with Mr. Lightwood said Bella, springing up. "'You are the most creasing and tumbling clumsy boots of a packer, John, that ever was. But if you're quite good, and will promise never to do so any more, though I don't know what you have done, you may pack me a little bag for a night, while I get my bonnet on.' He gaily complied, and she tied her dimpled chin up, and shook her head into her bonnet and pulled out the bows of her bonnet-strings, and got her gloves on, finger by finger, and finally got them on her little plump hands, and bade him good-bye, and went down. Mr. Lightwood's impatience was much relieved when he found her dressed for departure. "'Mr. Rokesmith goes with us,' he said, hesitating with a look towards the door. "'Oh, I forgot,' replied Bella, "'his best compliments. His face is swollen to the size of two faces, and he is to go to bed directly, poor fellow, to wait for the doctor who is coming to lance him.' "'It is curious,' observed Lightwood, "'that I have never yet seen Mr. Rokesmith, though we have been engaged in the same affairs.' "'Really?' said the unblushing Bella. "'I begin to think,' observed Lightwood, "'that I never shall see him.' "'These things happen so oddly sometimes,' said Bella, with a steady countenance, "'that there seems a kind of fatality in them. But I am quite ready, Mr. Lightwood.' They started directly in a little carriage that Lightwood had brought with him from never-to-be-forgotten Greenwich, and from Greenwich they started directly for London, and in London they waited at a railway station until such time as the Reverend Frank Milvey and Margareta, his wife, with whom Mortimer Lightwood had been already in conference, should come and join them. That worthy couple were delayed by a portentous old parishioner of the female gender, 
who was one of the plagues of their lives, and with whom they bore with most exemplary sweetness and good humour, notwithstanding her having an infection of absurdity about her, that communicated itself to everything with which, and everybody with whom, she came in contact. She was a member of the Reverend Frank's congregation, and made a point of distinguishing herself in that body by conspicuously weeping at everything, however cheering, said by the Reverend Frank in his public ministration also by applying to herself the various lamentations of david and complaining in a personally injured manner much in arrear of the clerk and the rest of the respondents that her enemies were digging pitfalls about her and breaking her with rods of iron indeed this old widow discharged herself of that portion of the morning and evening service as if she were lodging a complaint on oath and applying for a warrant before a magistrate but this was not her most inconvenient characteristic for that took the form of an impression, usually recurring in inclement weather and about daybreak, that she had something on her mind, and stood in immediate need of the Reverend Frank to come and take it off. Many a time had that kind creature got up, and gone out to Mrs. Spodgkin, such was the disciple's name, suppressing a strong sense of her comicality by his strong sense of duty, and perfectly knowing that nothing but a cold would come of it however beyond themselves the reverend frank milvey and mrs milvey seldom hinted that mrs spodgkin was hardly worth the trouble she gave but both made the best of her as they did of all their troubles this very exacting member of the fold appeared to be endowed with a sixth sense in regard of knowing when the reverend frank milvey least desired her company and with promptitude appearing in his little hall consequently when the reverend frank had willingly engaged that he and his wife would accompany lightwood back he said as a matter of course we must uh, make haste to get out uh, margaretta my dear or we shall be descended uh, on by mrs uh, spodgkin to which mrs milvey replied in her pleasantly emphatic way oh yes for she is such a marplot frank and does worry so words that were scarcely uttered, when their theme was announced as in faithful attendance below, desiring counsel on a spiritual matter. The points on which Mrs. Spodgkin sought elucidation, being seldom of a pressing nature, as who begat whom, or some information concerning the Amorites, Mrs. Milvey on this special occasion resorted to the device of buying her off, with a present of tea and sugar, and a loaf and butter. These gifts Mrs. Spodgkin accepted but still insisted on dutifully remaining in the hall, to curtsy to the Reverend Frank as he came forth, who incautiously saying, in his genial manner, "'Well, uh, Sally, there you are,' involved himself in a discursive address from Mrs. Spodgkin, revolving around the result that she regarded tea and sugar in the light of myrrh and frankincense, and considered bread and butter identical with locusts and wild honey." Having communicated this edifying piece of information, Mrs. Spodgkin was left still unadjourned in the hall, and Mr. and Mrs. Milvey hurried in a heated condition to the railway station. All of which is here recorded to the honour of that good Christian pair, representatives of hundreds of other good Christian pairs, as conscientious and as useful, who merge the smallness of their work in its greatness, and feel in no danger of losing dignity when they adapt themselves to incomprehensible humbugs detained uh, at the last moment by one who had uh, a claim upon me was the reverend frank's apology to lightwood taking no thought of himself 
to which Mrs. Milvey added, taking thought for him, like the championing little wife she was. "'Oh, yes, detained at the last moment. But as to the claim, Frank, I must say that I do think you are over-considerate sometimes, and allow that to be a little abused.' Bella felt conscious, in spite of her late pledge for herself, that her husband's absence would give disagreeable occasion for surprise to the Milvies. Nor could she be quite at her ease when Mrs. Milvey asked, "'How is Mr. Rokesmith, and is he gone before us, or does he follow us?' It becoming necessary upon this to send him to bed again, and hold him in waiting to be lanced again, Bella did it, but not half as well on the second occasion as on the first, for a twice-told white one seems almost to become a black one, when you are not used to it. "'Oh, dear,' said Mrs. Milvey, "'I am so sorry. Mr. Rokesmith took such an interest in Lizzie Hexham when we were there before, and if we had only known of his face, we could have given him something that would have kept it down long enough for so short a purpose.' By way of making the white one whiter, Bella hastened to stipulate that he was not in pain. Mrs. Milvey was so glad of it. "'I don't know how it is,' said Mrs. Milvey, "'and I am sure you don't, Frank. But the clergy and their wives seem to cause swelled faces.' "'Whenever I take notice of a child in the school, it seems to me as if its face swelled instantly. Frank never makes acquaintance with a new old woman, but she gets the face ache. And another thing is, we do make the poor children sniff so. I don't know how we do it, and I should be so glad not to, but the more we take notice of them, the more they sniff, just as they do when the text is given out. Frank, that's a schoolmaster. I have seen him somewhere." The reference was to a young man of reserved appearance, in a coat and waistcoat of black, and pantaloons of pepper and salt. He had come into the office of the station, from its interior, in an unsettled way, immediately after Lightwood had gone out to the train, and he had been hurriedly reading the printed bills and notices on the wall. He had had a wandering interest in what was said among the people waiting there, and passing to and fro. He had drawn nearer at about the time when Mrs. Milvey mentioned Lizzie Hexham, and remained near since, though always glancing towards the door by which Lightwood had gone out. He stood with his back towards them, and his gloved hands clasped behind him. There was now so evident a faltering upon him, expressive of indecision, whether or no he should express his having heard himself referred to, that Mr. Milvey spoke to him. "'I cannot recall your name,' he said, "'but I remember to have seen you in your school.' "'My name is Bradley Headstone, sir,' he replied, backing into a more retired place. "'I ought to have remembered it.' said Mr. Milvey, giving him his hand. "'I hope you are well. A little overworked, I am afraid.' "'Yes, I am overworked just at present, sir.' "'Had no play in your last holiday time?' "'No, sir.' "'All the work and no play, Mr. Headstone, will not make 
make dullness in your case i dare say but it will make dyspepsia if you don't take care i will endeavour to take care sir might i beg leave to speak to you outside a moment by all means it was evening and the office was well lighted the schoolmaster, who had never remitted his watch on Lightwood's door, now moved by another door to a corner without, where there was more shadow than light, and said, plucking at his gloves, "'One of your ladies, sir, mentioned within my hearing a name that I am acquainted with. I may say, well acquainted with. The name of the sister of an old pupil of mine. He was my pupil for a long time, and has got on and gone upward rapidly. The name of Hexham.' the name of Lizzie Hexham. He seemed to be a shy man, struggling against nervousness, and spoke in a very constrained way. The break he set between his last two sentences was quite embarrassing to his hearer. "'Yes,' uh, replied Mr. Milvey, "'we are going down to see her.' "'I gathered as much, sir. I hope there is nothing amiss with the sister of my old pupil. I hope no bereavement has befallen her. I hope she is in no affliction, has lost no relation." Mr. Milvey thought this a man with a very odd manner, and a dark downward look. But he answered in his usual open way. "'I am glad to tell you. Mr. Headstone, that the sister of your old pupil has not sustained any such loss. You thought I might be going down to bury some one? That may have been the connection of ideas, sir, with your clerical character, but I was not conscious of it. Then you are not, sir? A man with a very odd manner indeed, and with a lurking look that was quite oppressive. "'No, in fact,' said Mr. Milvey, "'since you are so interested in the sister of your old pupil, "'I may as well tell you that I am going down to marry her.' The schoolmaster started back. "'Not to marry her myself,' said Mr. Milvey, with a smile, "'because I have a wife already, to perform the marriage service.' at her wedding. Badley Headstone caught hold of a pillar behind him. If Mr. Milvey knew an ashy face when he saw it, he saw it then. "'You are quite uh, ill, uh, Mr. Headstone.' "'It is not much, sir. It will pass over very soon. I am accustomed to be seized with uh, giddiness. Don't let me detain you, sir. I stand in need of no assistance. I thank you. Much obliged by your sparing me these minutes of your time." As Mr. Milvey, who had no more minutes to spare, made a suitable reply, and turned back into the office, he observed the schoolmaster to lean against the pillar with his hat in his hand, and to pull at his neckcloth as if he were trying to tear it off. The Reverend Frank accordingly directed the notice of one of the attendants to him, by saying, "'There is a person outside, who seems to be really ill, and to require some help, uh, though he says he does not.' Lightwood had by this time secured their places, and the departure bell was about to be rung. They took their seats, and were beginning to move out of the station, when the same attendant came running along the platform, looking into all the carriages. 
"'Oh, you're here, sir,' he said, springing on the step, and holding the window-frame by his elbow as the carriage moved. "'That person you pointed out to me is in a fit.' "'I infer from what he told uh, me that he is subjected uh, to such attacks. He will come to in the air in a little while.' He was took very bad, to be sure, and was biting and knocking about him, the man said furiously. Would the gentleman give him his card, as he had seen him first? The gentleman did so, with the explanation that he knew no more of the man attacked, than that he was a man of a very respectable occupation, who had said he was out of health, as his appearance would of itself have indicated. The attendant received the card, watched his opportunity of sliding down, slid down, and so it ended. Then the train rattled among the housetops and among the ragged sides of houses torn down to make way for it, and over the swarming streets, and under the fruitful earth, until it shot across the river, bursting over the quiet surface like a bombshell, and gone again, as if it had exploded in a rush of smoke and steam and glare. A little more, and again it roared across the river, a great rocket, spurning the watery turnings and doublings with ineffable contempt, and going straight to its end, as far the time goes to his. To whom it is no matter what living waters run high or low, reflect the heavenly lights and darknesses, produce their little growth of weeds and flowers, turn here, turn there, are noisy or still, are troubled or at rest, for their course has one sure termination, though their sources and devices are many. Then a carriage-ride succeeded, near the solemn river, stealing away by night, as all things steal away by night and by day, so quietly yielding to the attraction of the lodestone rock of eternity. And the nearer they drew to the chamber where Eugene lay, the more they feared that they might find his wanderings done. At last they saw its dim light shining out, and it gave them hope, though Lightwood faltered as he thought, if he were gone, she would still be sitting by him. But he lay quiet, half in stupor, half in sleep. Bella, entering with a raised admonitory finger, kissed Lizzie softly, but said not a word. Neither did any of them speak, but all sat down at the foot of the bed, silently waiting. And now, in this night-watch, mingling with the flow of the river, and with the rush of the train, came the questions into Bella's mind again. What could be in the depths of that mystery of John's? Why was it that he had never been seen by Mr. Lightwood, whom he still avoided? When would that trial come, through which her faith in, and her duty to, her dear husband, was to carry her, rendering him triumphant? For that had been his term. Her passing through the trial was to make the man she loved with all her heart triumphant, term not to sink out of sight in Bella's breast. Far on in the night Eugene opened his eyes. He was sensible, and said at once, "'How does the time go? Has our Mortimer come back?' Lightwood was there immediately to answer for himself. "'Yes, Eugene, and all is ready.' "'Dear boy,' returned Eugene with a smile, "'we both thank you heartily. Lizzie, tell them how welcome they are, and that I would be eloquent, if I could. "'There is no need,' said Mr. Milvey. "'We know it. Are you better, Mr. Rayburn?' 
I am much happier, said Eugene. Much better, too, I hope. Eugene turned his eyes towards Lizzie, as if to spare her, and answered nothing. Then they all stood round the bed, and Mr. Milvey, opening his book, began the service, so rarely associated with the shadow of death, so inseparable in the mind from a flush of life and gaiety and hope and health and joy. Bella thought how different from her own sunny little wedding, and wept. Mrs. Milvey overflowed with pity, and wept too. The doll's dressmaker, with her hands before her face, wept in her golden bower. Reading in a low, clear voice, and bending over Eugene, who kept his eyes upon him, Mr. Milvey did his office with suitable simplicity. As the bridegroom could not move his hand, they touched his fingers with the ring, and so put it on the bride. When the two plighted their troth, she laid her hand on his, and kept it there. When the ceremony was done, and all the rest departed from the room, she drew her arm under his head, and laid her own head down upon the pillow by his side. "'Undraw the curtains, my dear girl,' said Eugene, after a while, "'and let us see our wedding day.' The sun was rising, and his first rays struck into the room, as she came back, and put her lips to his. "'I bless the day,' said Eugene. "'I bless the day,' said Lizzie. "'You have made a poor marriage of it, my sweet wife," said Eugene. A shattered, graceless fellow, stretched at his length here, and next to nothing for you, when you are a young widow. I've made the marriage that I would have given all the world to dare to hope for, she replied. You have thrown yourself away said Eugene, shaking his head. "'But you have followed the treasure of your heart. My justification is that you had thrown that away first, dear girl.' "'No, I had given it to you.' "'The same thing, my poor Lizzie. "'Hush, hush, a very different thing.' There were tears in his eyes and she besought him to close them. "'No,' said Eugene, again shaking his head. "'Let me look at you, Lizzie, while I can. You brave, devoted girl, you heroine!' Her own eyes filled under his praises, and when he mustered strength to move his wounded head a very little way, and lay it on her bosom, the tears of both fell. "'Lizzie,' said Eugene, after a silence, "'when you see me wandering away from this refuge that I have so ill-deserved, speak to me by my name, and I think I shall come back.' "'Yes, dear Eugene.' "'There!' he exclaimed, smiling. "'I should have gone then, but for that.' A little while afterwards, when he appeared to be sinking into insensibility, she said in a calm, loving voice, 
Eugene, my dear husband. He immediately answered, There, again, you see how you can recall me. And afterwards, when he could not speak, he still answered by a slight movement of his head upon her bosom. The sun was high in the sky when she gently disengaged herself to give him the stimulants and nourishment he required. The utter helplessness of the wreck of him that lay cast ashore there now alarmed her, but he himself appeared a little more hopeful. "'Ah, oh, my beloved Lizzie,' he said faintly, "'how shall I ever pay all I owe you, if I recover?' "'Don't be ashamed of me,' she replied, "'and you will have more than paid all.' "'It would require a life, Lizzie, to pay all, more than a life.' "'Live for that, then. Live for me, Eugene. Live to see how hard I will try to improve myself, and never to discredit you.' My darling girl he replied rallying more of his old manner than he had ever yet got together on the contrary i have been thinking whether it is not the best thing i can do to die the best thing you can do to leave me with a broken heart i don't mean that my dear girl i was not thinking of that what I was thinking of was this. Out of your compassion for me, in this maimed and broken state, you make so much of me, you think so well of me, you love me so dearly. Heaven knows I love you dearly, and heaven knows I prize it. Well, if I live, you'll find me out. I shall find out that my husband has a mine of purpose and energy, and will turn it to the best account. I hope so, dearest Lizzie, said Eugene wistfully, and yet somewhat whimsically. I hope so. But I can't summon the vanity to think so. How can I think so, looking back on such a trifling, wasted youth as mine? I humbly hope it, but I daren't believe it. There is a sharp misgiving in my conscience that if I were to live, I should disappoint your good opinion and my own, and that I ought to die, my dear. End of Book Four, Chapter Eleven. Book Four. Chapter Twelve of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. 
Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens Book Four A Turning Chapter Twelve The Passing Shadow The winds and tides rose and fell a certain number of times. The earth moved round the sun a certain number of times. The ship upon the ocean made her voyage safely, and brought a baby Bella home. Then who so blessed and happy as Mrs. John Rokesmith, saving and accepting Mr. John Rokesmith? "'Would you not like to be rich now, my darling?' "'How can you ask me such a question, John, dear? Am I not rich?' These were among the first words spoken near the baby Bella, as she lay asleep. She soon proved to be a baby of wonderful intelligence, evincing the strongest objection to her grandmother's society, and being invariably seized with a painful acidity of the stomach when that dignified lady honoured her with any attention. It was charming to see Bella contemplating this baby, and finding out her own dimples in that tiny reflection, as if she were looking in the glass without personal vanity. Her cherubic father justly remarked to her husband, that the baby seemed to make her younger than before, reminding him of the days when she had a pet doll and used to talk to it as she carried it about. The world might have been challenged to produce another baby who had such a store of pleasant nonsense said and sung to it as Bella said and sung to this baby, or who was dressed and undressed as often in four-and-twenty hours as Bella dressed and undressed this baby, or who was held behind doors and poked out to stop its father's way when he came home as this baby was, or, in a word, who did half the number of baby things through the lively invention of a gay and proud young mother than this inexhaustible baby did. The inexhaustible baby was two or three months old, when Bella began to notice a cloud upon her husband's brow. Watching it, she saw a gathering and deepening anxiety there, which caused her great disquiet. More than once she woke him muttering in his sleep, and though he muttered nothing worse than her own name, it was plain to her that his restlessness originated in some load of care. Therefore Bella at length put in her claim to divide this load, and hear her half of it. "'You know, John dear,' she said cheerily, reverting to their former conversation, "'that I hope I may safely be trusted in great things.' and it surely cannot be a little thing that causes you so much uneasiness. It's very considerate of you to try to hide from me that you are uncomfortable about something, but it's quite impossible to be done, John Love. I admit that I am rather uneasy, my own. Then please to tell me what about, sir. But no, he evaded that. Never mind, thought Bella resolutely. "'John requires me to put perfect faith in him, and he shall not be disappointed.' She went up to London one day to meet him, in order that they might make some purchases. She found him waiting for her at her journey's end, and they walked away together through the streets. He was in gay spirits, though still harping on that notion of their being rich, and he said, "'Now let them make believe that yonder fine carriage was theirs, and that it was waiting to take them home to a fine house they had.' What would Bella, in that case, best like to find in the house? Well, Bella didn't know. Already having everything she wanted, she couldn't say. But, by degrees, she was led on to confess that she would like to have, for the inexhaustible baby, such a nursery as never was seen. It was to be a very rainbow for colours, 
as she was quite sure baby noticed colours, and the staircase was to be adorned with the most exquisite flowers, as she was absolutely certain baby noticed flowers, and there was to be an aviary somewhere of the loveliest little birds, as there was not the smallest doubt in the world that baby noticed birds. Was there nothing else? No, John dear. The predilections of the inexhaustible baby being provided for, Bella could think of nothing else. They were chatting on in this way, and John had suggested, "'No jewels for your own wear, for instance?' And Bella had replied, laughing, "'Oh, if he came to that, yes, there might be a beautiful ivory case of jewels on her dressing-table.' When these pictures were in a moment darkened and blotted out, they turned a corner, and met Mr. Lightwood. He stopped, as if he were petrified by the sight of Bella's husband, who in the same moment had changed colour. "'Mr. Lightwood and I have met before,' he said. "'Met before, John,' Bella repeated in a tone of wonder. "'Mr. Lightwood told me he had never seen you.' "'I did not then know that I had,' said Lightwood, discomposed on her account. "'I believed that I had only heard of Mr. Rokesmith.' with an emphasis on the name. "'When Mr. Lightwood saw me, my love,' observed her husband, not avoiding his eye, but looking at him, "'my name was Julius Hanford.' "'Julius Hanford!' The name that Bella had so often seen in old newspapers, when she was an inmate of Mr. Boffin's house. Julius Hanford, who had been publicly entreated to appear, and for intelligence of whom a reward had been publicly offered. "'I would have avoided mentioning it in your presence,' said Lightwood to Bella delicately. "'But since your husband mentions it himself, I must confirm his strange admission. "'I saw him as Mr. Julius Hanford, and I afterwards, unquestionably to his knowledge, "'took great pains to trace him out.' "'Quite true. But it was not my object or my interest,' said Rokesmith quietly, "'to be traced out.' Bella looked from the one to the other in amazement. "'Mr. Lightwood,' pursued her husband, "'as chance has brought us face to face at last, which is not to be wondered at, for the wonder is that, in spite of all my pains to the contrary, chance has not confronted us together sooner. I have only to remind you that you have been at my house, and to add that I have not changed my residence.' "'Sir,' returned Lightwood, with a meaning glance towards Bella. "'My position is a truly painful one. I hope that no complicity in a very dark transaction may attach to you, but you cannot fail to know that your own extraordinary conduct has laid you under suspicion.' "'I know it has,' was all the reply. "'My professional duty,' said Lightwood, hesitating, with another glance towards Bella, "'is greatly at variance with my personal inclination.' But I doubt, Mr. Hanford, or Mr. Rokesmith, whether I am justified in taking leave of you here, with your whole course unexplained." Bella caught her husband by the hand. "'Don't be alarmed, my darling. Mr. Lightwood will find that he is quite justified in taking leave of me here, at all events,' added Rokesmith. "'He will find that I mean to take leave of him, here.' "'I think, sir,' said Lightwood. "'You can scarcely deny that when I came to your house on the occasion to which you have referred, you avoided me of a set purpose?' "'Mr. Lightwood, 
I assure you I have no disposition to deny it, or intention to deny it. I should have continued to avoid you, in pursuance of the same set purpose, for a short time longer, if we had not met now. I am going straight home, and shall remain at home to-morrow until noon. Hereafter I hope we may be better acquainted. Good day. Lightwood stood irresolute, but Bella's husband passed him in the steadiest manner, with Bella on his arm, and they went home, without encountering any further remonstrance or molestation from any one. When they had dined and were alone, John Rokesmith said to his wife, who had preserved her cheerfulness, "'And you don't ask me, my dear, why I bore that name?' "'No, John, love. I should dearly like to know, of course,' which her anxious face confirmed. "'But I wait until you can tell me of her own free will. You asked me if I could have perfect faith in you, and I said yes, and I meant it.' It did not escape Bella's notice that he began to look triumphant. She wanted no strengthening in her firmness, but if she had had need of any, she would have derived it from his kindling face. "'You cannot have been prepared, my dearest, for such a discovery as that. This mysterious Mr. Hanford was identical with your husband.' "'No, John, dear, of course not. But you told me to prepare to be tried, and I prepared myself.' He drew her to nestle closer to him and told her it would soon be over, and the truth would soon appear. "'And now,' he went on, "'lay stress, my dear, on these words that I am going to add. I stand in no kind of peril, and I can by possibility be hurt at no one's hand.' "'You are quite, quite sure of that, John, dear?' "'Not a hair of my head. Moreover, I have done no wrong, and have injured no man. Shall I swear it?' "'No, John,' cried Bella, laying her hand upon his lips, with a proud look, "'never to me.' "'But circumstances,' he went on, "'I can, and I will, disperse them in a moment, "'have surrounded me with one of the strangest suspicions ever known. "'You heard Mr. Lightwood speak of a dark transaction?' "'Yes, John.' "'You are prepared to hear explicitly what he meant?' "'Yes, John.' "'My life. He meant the murder of John Harmon, your allotted husband.' With a fast, palpitating heart, Bella grasped him by the arm. "'You cannot be suspected, John.' "'Dear love, I can be, for I am.' There was silence between them, as she sat looking in his face, with the colour quite gone from her own face and lips. "'How dare they!' she cried at length, in a burst of generous indignation. "'My beloved husband! How dare they!' He caught her in his arms, as she opened hers, and held her to his heart. "'Even knowing this, you can trust me, Bella?' "'I can trust you, John, dear, with all my soul. If I could not trust you, I should fall dead at your feet.' The kindling triumph in his face was bright indeed, as he looked up and rapturously exclaimed, what had he done to deserve the blessing of this dear confiding creature's heart? Again she put her hand upon his lips, saying, Hush! And then told him, in her own little natural pathetic way, that if all the world were against him, she would be for him, 
that if all the world repudiated him, she would believe him, and that if he were infamous in other eyes, he would be honoured in hers, and that, under the worst unmerited suspicion, she could devote her life to consoling him, and imparting her own faith in him, to their little child. A twilight calm of happiness then succeeding to their radiant noon, they remained at peace, until a strange voice in the room startled them both. The room being by that time dark, the voice said, "'Don't let the lady be alarmed by my striking a light.' And immediately a match rattled and glimmered in a hand. The hand, and the match, and the voice, were then seen by John Rokesmith to belong to Mr. Inspector, once meditatively active in this chronicle. "'I take the liberty,' said Mr. Inspector, in a business-like manner, "'to bring myself to the recollection of Mr. Julius Hanford, "'who gave me his name and address down at our place a considerable time ago. "'Would the lady object to my lighting the pair of candles on the chimney-piece "'to throw a further light upon the subject? "'No, thank you, ma'am. Now we look cheerful.' Mr. Inspector, in a dark blue buttoned-up frock-coat and pantaloons, presented a serviceable, half-pay, royal-arms kind of appearance, as he applied his pocket-handkerchief to his nose, and bowed to the lady. "'You favoured me, Mr. Ranford,' said Mr. Inspector, "'by writing down your name and address, and I produced the piece of paper on which you wrote it. Comparing the same with the writing on the fly-leaf of this book on the table, and a sweet, pretty volume it is. I find the writing of the entry, Mrs. John Rokesmith, from her husband on her birthday, and very gratifying to the feelings such memorials are, to correspond exactly. Can I have a word with you?' "'Certainly. Here, if you please,' was the reply. "'Why,' retorted Mr. Inspector, again using his pocket-handkerchief, "'Though there's nothing for the lady to be at all alarmed at, still, ladies are apt to take alarm at matters of business, being of that fragile sex that they're not accustomed to them when not of a strictly domestic character, and I do generally make it a rule to propose retirement from the presence of ladies before entering upon business topics. Or perhaps,' Mr. Inspector hinted, "'if the lady was to step upstairs and uh, take a look at baby now.' "'Mrs. Rokesmith,' her husband was beginning, when Mr. Inspector, regarding the words as an introduction, said, "'Happy, I'm sure, to have the honour," and bowed with gallantry. "'Mrs. Rokesmith,' resumed her husband, "'is satisfied that you can have no reason for being alarmed, whatever the business is.' "'Really? Is that so?' said Mr. Inspector. "'But it's a sex to live and learn from, and there's nothing a lady can't accomplish when she once fully gives her mind to it. It's the case with me own wife. Well, ma'am, this good gentleman of yours has given rise to a rather large amount of trouble, which might have been avoided if he had come forward and explained himself. Well, you see, he didn't come forward and explain himself. Consequently, now that we meet, him and me, you'll say, and say right that there's nothing to be alarmed at in my proposing to him to come forward, or putting the same meaning in another form to come along with me, and explain himself. When Mr. Inspector put it in that other form to come along with me, there was a relishing roll in his voice, and his eye beamed with an official lustre. "'Do you propose to take me into custody?' 
inquired John Rokesmith, very coolly. "'Why argue?' returned Mr. Inspector, in a comfortable sort of remonstrance. "'Ain't it enough that I propose that you shall come along with me?' "'For what reason?' "'Lord bless my soul and body,' returned Mr. Inspector. "'I wonder at it in a man of your education. Why argue?' "'What do you charge against me?' "'I wonder at you before a lady,' said Mr. Inspector, shaking his head reproachfully. "'I wonder, brought up as you have been, you haven't a more delicate mind. I charge you, then, with being some way concerned in the arm and murder. I don't say whether before, or in, or after the fact. I don't say whether, with having some knowledge of it, that hasn't come out.' "'You don't surprise me. I foresaw your visit this afternoon.' "'Don't,' said Mr. Inspector. "'Why, why argue? It's my duty to inform you that whatever you say will be used against you.' "'I don't think it will.' "'But I tell you it will,' said Mr. Inspector. "'Now, having received the caution, do you still say that you foresaw my visit this afternoon?' "'Yes. And I will say something more, if you will step with me into the next room.' With a reassuring kiss on the lips of the frightened Bella, her husband, to whom Mr. Inspector obligingly offered his arm, took up a candle and withdrew with that gentleman. They were a full half-hour in conference. When they returned, Mr. Inspector looked considerably astonished. "'I have invited this worthy officer, my dear,' said John, "'to make a short excursion with me in which you shall be a sharer. He will take something to eat and drink.' I dare say on your invitation, while you are getting your bonnet on." Mr. Inspector declined eating, but assented to the proposal of a glass of brandy and water. Mixing this cold, and pensively consuming it, he broke at intervals into such soliloquies as that he never did know such a move, that he never had been so gravelled, and that what a game was this to try the sort of stuff a man's opinion of himself was made of. Concurrently with these comments, he more than once burst out a-laughing, with the half-enjoying and half-peaked air of a man who had given up a good conundrum after much guessing and been told the answer. Bella was so timid of him that she noted these things in a half-shrinking, half-perceptive way, and similarly noted that there was a great change in his manner towards John, that, coming along with him deportment, was now lost in long musing looks at John and at herself and sometimes in slow, heavy rubs of his hand across his forehead, as if he were ironing out the creases which his deep pondering made there. He had had some coughing and whistling satellites secretly gravitating towards him about the premises, but they were now dismissed, and he eyed John as if he had meant to do him a public service but had unfortunately been anticipated. Whether Bella might have noted anything more, if she had been less afraid of him, she could not determine but it was all inexplicable to her, and not the faintest flash of the real state of the case broke in upon her mind. Mr. Inspector's increased notice of herself, and knowing way of raising his eyebrows when their eyes by any chance met, as if he put the question, "'Don't you see?' augmented her timidity, and consequently her perplexity. For all these reasons, when he and she and John, at towards nine o'clock of a winter evening, went to London, and began driving from London Bridge, among low-lying waterside wharves and docks and strange places, Bella was in the state of a dreamer, 
perfectly unable to account for her being there, perfectly unable to forecast what would happen next, or whither she was going, or why, certain of nothing in the immediate present but that she confided in John, and that John seemed somehow to be getting more triumphant. But what a certainty was that! They alighted at last at the corner of a court, where there was a building with a bright lamp and wicket-gate. Its orderly appearance was very unlike that of the surrounding neighbourhood, and was explained by the inscription, Police Station. "'We are not going in here, John,' said Bella, clinging to him. "'Yes, my dear, but of our own accord. We shall come out again as easily, never fear.' The whitewashed room was pure white as of old. The methodical bookkeeping was in peaceful progress as of old, and some distant howler was banging against a cell door as of old. The sanctuary was not a permanent abiding place, but a kind of criminal Pickford's. The lower passions and vices were regularly ticked off in the books, warehoused in the cells, carted away as per accompanying invoice, and left little mark upon it. Mr. Inspector placed two chairs for his visitors before the fire and communed in a low voice with the brother of his order, also of a half-pay and royal arms aspect, who, judged only by his occupation at the moment, might have been a writing-master setting copies. Their conference done, Mr. Inspector returned to the fireplace, and, having observed that he would step round to the fellowships, and see how matters stood, went out. He soon came back again, saying, "'Nothing could be better, for there is supper with Miss Abby in the bar.' and then they all three went out together. Still, as in a dream, Bella found herself entering a snug, old-fashioned public-house, and found herself smuggled into a little three-cornered room nearly opposite the bar of that establishment. Mr. Inspector achieved the smuggling of herself and John into this queer room, called Cosy, in an inscription on the door, by entering in the narrow passage first in order, and suddenly turning round upon them with extended arms, as if they had been two sheep. The room was lighted for their reception. "'Now,' said Mr. Inspector to John, turning the gas lower, "'I'll mix with them in a casual way, and when I say identification, perhaps you'll show yourself.' John nodded, and Mr. Inspector went alone to the half-door of the bar. From the dim doorway of Cosy, within which Bella and her husband stood, they could see a comfortable little party of three persons, sitting at supper in the bar, and could hear everything that was said. The three persons were Miss Abby and two male guests, to whom collectively Mr. Inspector remarked that the weather was getting sharp for the time of year. "'It need be sharp to suit your wits, sir,' said Miss Abby. "'What have you got in hand now?' "'Thanking you for your compliment. Not much, Miss Abby,' was Mr. Inspector's rejoinder. "'Who have you got in the cosy?' asked Miss Abby. "'Only a gentleman and his wife, Miss.' "'And who are they? If one may ask it, without detriment to your deep plans and the interests of the honest public,' said Miss Abby, proud of Mr. Inspector as an administrative genius. "'They are strangers in this part of the town, Miss Abby.' They are waiting till I shall want the gentleman to show himself somewhere for uh, half a moment. While they're waiting, said Miss Abby, couldn't you join us? Mr. Inspector immediately slipped into the bar, and sat down at the side of the half-door, with his back towards the passage, and directly facing the two guests. Ah, don't take my supper till later in the night, said he. 
and therefore I won't disturb the compactness of the table. But I'll take a glass of flip, if that's a flip in the jug in the fender.' "'That's flip,' replied Miss Abbey, "'and it's my making, and if even you can find out better, I shall be glad to know where.' Filling him with hospitable hands, a steaming tumbler, Miss Abbey replaced the jug by the fire. The company not having yet arrived at the flip stage of their supper, but being as yet skirmishing with strong ale. "'Ah!' cried Mr. Inspector. "'That's the smack. There's not a detective in the force, Miss Abbey, that could find out better stuff than that.' "'Glad to hear you say so,' rejoined Miss Abbey. "'You ought to know, if anybody does.' "'Mr. Job Potterson,' Mr. Inspector continued, "'I drink your health. Mr. Jacob Kibble, I drink yours. Hope you have made a prosperous voyage home, gentlemen both.' Mr. Kibble, an unctuous, broad man of few words and many mouthfuls, said, more briefly than pointedly, raising his ale to his lips, "'Same to you,' Mr. Job Potterson, a semi-seafaring man of obliging demeanour, said, "'Thank you, sir.' "'Lord bless my soul and body!' cried Mr. Inspector. "'Talk of trades, Miss Abbey, and the way they set their marks on men—a subject which nobody had approached—who wouldn't know your brother to be a steward? There's a bright and ready twinkle in his eye, there's a neatness in his action, there's a smartness in his figure, there's an air of reliability about him in case you want a basin, which points out the steward.' "'And Mr. Kibble, ain't he a passenger all over? "'While there's that mercantile cut upon him "'which would make you happy to give him credit for five hundred pound, "'don't you see the salt sea shining on him too?' "'You do, I dare say,' returned Miss Abbey. "'But I don't. "'And as for stewarding, I think it's time my brother gave that up "'and took his house in hand on his sister's retiring. "'The house will go to pieces if he don't.' I wouldn't sell it for any money that could be told out to a person I couldn't depend upon to be a lord of the porters, as I have been. "'There you're right, miss,' said Mr. Inspector. "'A better kept house is not known to our men. What do I say? Half so well a kept house is not known to our men. Show the force the six jolly fellowship porters, and the force to a constable will show you a piece of perfection, Mr. Kibble." That gentleman, with a very serious shake of his head, subscribed the article. "'And uh, talk of time slipping by you, as if it was an animal at rustic sports with its tail soaped,' said Mr. Inspector, again a subject which nobody had approached. "'Why, well you may, well you may. How has it slipped by us, since the time when Mr. Job Potterson here present, Mr. Jacob Kibble here present, and an officer of the force here present, first came together on a matter of identification? Bella's husband stepped softly to the half-door of the bar, and stood there. "'How has time slipped by us?' Mr. Inspector went on slowly, with his eyes narrowly observant of the two guests. "'Since we three very men, at an inquest in this very house, Mr. Kibble, taken ill, sir?' Mr. Kibble had staggered up, 
with his lower jaw dropped, catching Potterson by the shoulder, and pointing to the half-door, he now cried out, "'Potterson! Look! Look there!' Potterson started up, started back, and exclaimed, "'Heaven defend us! What's that?' Bella's husband stepped back to Bella, took her in his arms, for she was terrified by the unintelligible terror of the two men, and shut the door of the little room. A hurry of voices succeeded, in which Mr. Inspector's voice was busiest. It gradually slackened and sank, and Mr. Inspector reappeared. "'Sharp's the word, sir,' he said, looking in with a knowing wink. "'We'll get your lady out at once.' Immediately Bella and her husband were under the stars, making their way back alone to the vehicle they had kept in waiting. All this was most extraordinary, and Bella could make nothing of it but that John was in the right. How in the right, and how suspected of being in the wrong, she could not divine. Some vague idea that he had never really assumed the name of Hanford, and that there was a remarkable likeness between him and that mysterious person, was her nearest approach to any definite explanation. But John was triumphant. That much was made apparent, and she could wait for the rest. When John came home to dinner next day, he said, sitting down on the sofa by Bella and baby Bella, "'My dear, I have a piece of news to tell you. I have left the China House.' As he seemed to like having left it, Bella took it for granted that there was no misfortune in the case. "'In a word, my love,' said John, "'the China House is broken up and abolished. There is no such thing any more.' "'Then are you already in another house, John?' "'Yes, my darling.' I am in another way of business, and I am rather better off." The inexhaustible baby was instantly made to congratulate him, and to say, with appropriate action on the part of a very limp arm and a speckled fist, three cheers, ladies and gentle morums, hooray. "'I am afraid, my life,' said John, "'that you have become very much attached to this cottage.' "'Afraid I have, John. Of course I have.' "'The reason why I said afraid,' returned John, "'is because we must move.' "'Oh, John!' "'Yes, my dear, we must move. "'We must have our headquarters in London now. "'In short, there's a dwelling-house rent-free "'attached to my new position, and we must occupy it.' "'Oh, that's again, John!' "'Yes, my dear, it is undoubtedly again.' He gave her a very blithe look and a very sly look, which occasioned the inexhaustible baby to square at him with the speckled fists, and demand in a threatening manner what he meant. "'My love, you said it was again, and I said it was again. A very innocent remark, surely.' "'I won't,' said the inexhaustible baby, "'allow you to make game of my venerable ma.' At each division administering a soft facer, with one of the speckled fists. John having stooped down to receive these punishing visitations, Bella asked him would it be necessary to move soon. Why, yes, indeed, said John, he did propose that they should move very soon. Taking the furniture with them, of course, said Bella. Why, no, said John. The fact was that the house was, in a sort of a kind of a way, furnished already. 
The inexhaustible baby, hearing this, resumed the offensive, and said, "'But there's no nursery for me, sir. What do you mean, marble-hearted parent?' To which the marble-hearted parent rejoined that there was a sort of a kind of a nursery, and it might be made to do. "'Made to do?' returned the inexhaustible, administering more punishment. "'What do you take me for?' And was then turned over on its back in Bella's lap, and smothered with kisses. "'But really, John, dear,' said Bella, flushed in quite a lovely manner, by these exercises, "'will the new house, just as it stands, do for baby? That's the question.' "'I felt that to be the question,' he returned, "'and therefore I arranged that you should come with me and look at it to-morrow morning.' Appointment made, accordingly, for Bella to go up with him to-morrow morning, John kissed and Bella delighted. When they reached London in pursuance of their little plan, they took coach and drove westward. Not only drove westward, but drove into that particular westward division which Bella had seen last when she turned her face from Mr. Boffin's door. Not only drove into that particular division, but drove at last into that very street. Not only drove into that very street, but stopped at last at that very house. "'John, dear!' cried Bella, looking out of window in a flutter. "'Do you see where we are?' "'Yes, my love. The coachman's quite right.' The house-door was opened without any knocking or ringing, and John promptly helped her out. The servant, who stood holding the door, asked no question of John, neither did he go before them or follow them as they went straight upstairs. It was only her husband's encircling arm, urging her on, that prevented Bella from stopping at the foot of the staircase. As they ascended, it was seen to be tastefully ornamented with most beautiful flowers. "'Oh, John,' said Bella faintly, "'what does this mean?' "'Nothing, my darling, nothing. Let us go on.' Going on a little higher, they came to a charming aviary, in which a number of tropical birds more gorgeous in colour than the flowers, were flying about, and among those birds were gold and silver fish, and mosses, and water-lilies, and a fountain, and all manner of wonders. "'Oh, my dear John,' said Bella, "'what does this mean?' "'Nothing, my darling, nothing. Let us go on.' They went on, until they came to a door. As John put out his hand to open it, Bella caught his hand. "'I don't know what it means, but it's too much for me. Hold me, John, love.' John caught her up in his arm, and lightly dashed into the room with her. Behold Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, beaming. Behold Mrs. Boffin, clapping her hands in an ecstasy, running to Bella with tears of joy pouring down her comely face and folding her to her breast with the words, "'My deary, deary, deary girl, that Noddy and me saw married, and couldn't wish joy to, or so much as speak to, my deary, 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 wife of John and mother of his little child, my loving, loving, bright, bright, pretty, pretty, welcome to your house and home, my deary. End of Book 4, Chapter 12
Book Four, Chapter Thirteen of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Four, A Turning. Chapter Thirteen, Showing How the Golden Dustman Helped to Scatter Dust. In all the first bewilderment of her wonder, the most bewilderingly wonderful thing to Bella was the shining countenance of Mr. Boffin. That his wife should be joyous, open-hearted, and genial, or that her face should express every quality that was large and trusting, and no quality that was little or mean, was accordant with Bella's experience. But that he, with a perfectly beneficent air, and a plump, rosy face, should be standing there looking at her and John like some jovial good spirit, was marvellous. For how had he looked when she last saw him in that very room? It was the room in which she had given him that piece of her mind at parting. And what had become of all those crooked lines of suspicion, avarice, and distrust, that twisted his visage then? Mrs. Boffin seated Bella on the large ottoman, and seated herself beside her, and John, her husband, seated himself on the other side of her, and Mr. Boffin stood beaming at every one, and everything he could see, with surpassing jollity and enjoyment. Mrs. Boffin was then taken with a laughing fit of clapping her hands, and clapping her knees, and rocking herself to and fro, and then with another laughing fit of embracing Bella, and rocking her to and fro, both fits of considerable duration. "'Oh, lady! Oh, lady!' said Mr. Boffin at length. "'If you don't begin, somebody else must.' "'I'm a-going to begin, Noddy, my dear.' returned Mrs. Boffin, only it isn't easy for a person to know where to begin when the person is in this state of delight and happiness, Bella, my dear. Tell me, who's this? Who is this? repeated Bella. My husband. Ah, but tell me his name, dearie, cried Mrs. Boffin. Rooksmith. No, it ain't cried Mrs. Boffin, clapping her hands and shaking her head. "'Not a bit of it.' "'Hanford, then,' suggested Bella. "'No, it ain't,' cried Mrs. Boffin, again clapping her hands and shaking her head. "'Not a bit of it. "'At least his name is John, I suppose,' said Bella. "'Ah, I should think so, dearie,' cried Mrs. Boffin. "'I should hope so.' "'Many and many is a time I've called him by his name of John. "'But what's his other name, his true other name? "'Give a guess, my pretty.' "'I can't guess,' said Bella, turning her pale face from one to another. "'I could,' cried Mrs. Boffin, "'and what's more, I did. "'I found him out, all in a flash, as I might say, one night. "'Didn't I, Noddy?' "'Aye, that the old lady did,' said Mr. Boffin, with stout pride in the circumstance. "'Harky to me, dearie,' pursued Mrs. Boffin, taking Bella's hands between her own, and gently beating on them from time to time. "'It was after a particular night, when John had been disappointed, as he thought, in his affections. It was after a night when John had made an offer to a certain young lady, and the certain young lady had refused it. 
it was after a particular night when he felt himself cast away like, and had made up his mind to go seek his fortune. It was the very next night. My Noddy wanted a paper out of his secretary's room, and I says to Noddy, I am going by the door, and I'll ask him for it. I tapped at his door, and he didn't hear me. I looked in, and saw him a-sitting lonely by his fire, brooding over it. He chanced to look up with a pleased kind of smile in my company when he saw me, and then, in a single moment, every grain of the gunpowder that had been lying sprinkled thick about him ever since I first set eyes upon him as a man at the bower, took fire. Too many a time had I seen him sitting lonely when he was a poor child to be pitied heart and hand. Too many a time had I seen him in need of being brightened up with a comforting word. Too many and too many a time to be mistaken when that glimpse of him come at last. No, no, I just makes out a cry. I know you now. "'You're John!' And he catches me as I drops. "'So what?' says Mrs. Boffin, breaking off in the rush of her speech to smile most radiantly. "'Might you think by this time that your husband's name was, dear?' "'Not,' returned Bella, with quivering lips. "'Not Harmon. That's not possible.' "'Don't tremble.' "'Why not possible, dearie, when so many things are possible?' demanded Mrs. Boffin, in a soothing tone. "'He was killed,' gasped Bella. "'Thought to be,' said Mrs. Boffin. "'But if ever John Harmon drew the breath of life on earth, that is certainly John Harmon's arm round your waist now, my pretty. If ever John Harmon had a wife on earth, that wife is certainly you.' If ever John Harmon and his wife had a child on earth, that child is certainly this. By a masterstroke of secret arrangement, the inexhaustible baby here appeared at the door, suspended in mid-air by invisible agency. Mrs. Boffin, plunging at it, brought it to Bella's lap, where both Mrs. and Mr. Boffin, as the saying is, took it out of the inexhaustible in a shower of caresses. It was only this timely appearance that kept Bella from swooning. This, and her husband's earnestness in explaining further to her how it had come to pass that he had been supposed to be slain, and had even been suspected of his own murder. Also how he had put a pious fraud upon her which had preyed upon his mind, as the time for its disclosure approached, lest she might not make full allowance for the object with which it had originated, and in which it had fully developed. "'But bless ye, my beauty!' cried Mrs. Boffin, taking him up short at this point, with another hearty clap of her hands. "'It wasn't John only that was in it. We was all of us in it.' "'I don't,' said Bella, looking vacantly from one to another, "'yet understand.' "'Of course you don't, my dearie,' exclaimed Mrs. Boffin. "'How can you till you're told? "'So, now I'm a-going to tell you. "'So you put your two hands between my two hands again,' "'cried the comfortable creature, embracing her. "'With that blessed little picture lying on your lap, 
and you shall be told all the story. Now I'm a-going to tell the story. Once, twice, three times, and the horses is off. Here they go. When I cries out that night, I know you now, you're John, which was my exact words, wasn't they, John? Your exact words, said John, laying his hand on hers. That's a very good arrangement, cried Mrs. Boffin. Keep it there, John. And as we was all of us in it, Noddy, you come and lay yours atop of his, and we won't break the pile till the story's done. Mr. Boffin hitched up a chair, and added his broad brown right hand to the heap. "'That's capital,' said Mrs. Boffin, giving it a kiss. "'Seems quite a family building, don't it? But the horses is off. Well, when I cries out that night, I know you now, you're John. John catches of me, it is true, but I ain't a lightweight, bless ye, and he's forced to let me down.' Noddy, he hears a noise, and in he trots, and as soon as I anyways comes to myself, I calls to him, Noddy, well, I might say as I did say that night at the bower, for the Lord be thankful, this is John. On which he gives a heave, and down he goes likewise, with his head under the writing-table. This brings me round comfortable, and that brings him round comfortable, and then John, and him, and me, we all fall a-crying for joy. Yes, they cry for joy, my darling, her husband struck in. You understand, these two, whom I come to life to disappoint and dispossess, cry for joy. Bella looked at him confusedly, and looked again at Mrs. Boffin's radiant face. That's right, my dear, don't you mind him, said Mrs. Boffin. Stick to me. Well, then we sits down, gradually gets cool, and holds a confabulation. John, he tells us how he is despairing in his mind on account of a certain fair young person, and how, if I hadn't found him out, he was going away to seek his fortune far and wide, and had fully meant never to come to life, but to leave the property as our wrongful inheritance for ever in a day at which you never see a man so frightened as my noddy was for to think that he should have come into the property wrongful however innocent and more than that might have gone on keeping it to his dying day turned him whiter than chalk and you too said mr boffin don't you mind him neither my dearie resumed mrs boffin stick to me this brings up a confabulation regarding a certain fair young person when noddy he gives it as his opinion that she is a deary creature she may be a little spoilt and naturally spoilt he says by circumstances but that's only the surface in our lamey life he says that she's the true golden gold at art so did you said mr boffin "'Don't you mind him a single morsel, my dear,' proceeded Mrs. Boffin, "'but stick to me.' "'Then,' says John, "'Oh, if he could but prove so, "'then we both of us ups and says that minute, "'Prove so.' With a start, Bella directed a hurried glance towards Mr. Boffin, 
but he was sitting thoughtfully smiling at that broad brown hand of his, and either didn't see it, or would take no notice of it. "'Prove it, John,' we says, repeated Mrs. Boffin. "'Prove it, and overcome your doubts with triumph, and be happy for the first time in your life, and for the rest of your life. This puts John in a state, to be sure. Then we says, what will content you? If she was to stand up for you, when you was slighted, if she was to show herself of a generous mind, when you was oppressed, if she was to be truest to you, when you was poorest and friendliest, and all this against her own seeming interest, how would that do? Do, says John, it would raise me to the skies. Then, says my Noddy, make your preparations for the ascent, John, it being my firm belief that up you go. Bella caught Mr. Boffin's twinkling eye for half an instant, but he got it away from her, and restored it to his broad brown hand. From the first, you was always a special favourite of Noddy's, said Mrs. Boffin, shaking her head. Oh, you were! And if I had been inclined to be jealous, I don't know what I might have done to you. But as I wasn't, why, my beauty, with a hearty laugh and an embrace, I made you a special favourite of me own, too. But the horses is coming round the corner. Well, then, says my Noddy, shaking his sides, so he was fit to make a make again, look out for being slighted and oppressed, John, for if ever a man had a hard master, you shall find me, from this present time, to be such to you. And then he began, cried Mrs. Boffin, in an ecstasy of admiration. Lord bless you! Then he began. And how he did begin, didn't he? Bella looked half frightened, and yet half laughed. But bless you, pursued Mrs. Boffin, if you could have seen him of a night at that time of it, the way he'd sit and chuckle over himself, the way he'd say, I've been a regular brown bear to-day, and take himself in his arms and hug himself at the thoughts of the brute he had pretended. But every night he says to me, Better and better, old lady. What did we say of her? She'll come through it. The true golden gold. This'll be the happiest piece of work we've ever done. And then he'd say, I'll be a grizzlier old growl at to-morrow and laugh he would, till John and me was often forced to slap his back, and bring it out of his windpipes with a little water. Mr. Boffin, with his face bent over his heavy hand, made no sound, but rolled his shoulders when thus referred to, as if he were vastly enjoying himself. "'And so, my good and pretty,' pursued Mrs. Boffin, "'you was married, and there was we, hid up in the church organ by this husband of yours.' for he wouldn't let us out with it then, as was first meant. No, he says, she's so unselfish and contented that I can't afford to be rich yet. I must wait a little longer. Then, when baby was expected, he says, she is such a cheerful, glorious housewife that I can't afford to be rich yet. I must wait a little longer. Then, when baby was born, he says, she is so much better than she ever was, that I can't afford to be rich yet. I must wait a little longer. And so he goes on and on, till I says outright, Now, John, 
"'If you don't fix a time for setting her up in her own house and home, "'and letting us walk out of it, I'll turn informer.' "'Then he says he'll only wait to triumph beyond what we ever thought possible, "'and to show her to us better than even we ever supposed. "'And he says she shall see me under suspicion of having murdered myself, "'and you shall see how trusting and how true she'll be.' "'Well, Noddy and me agreed to that.' and he was right. And here you are. And the horses is in, and the story is done. And God bless you, my beauty, and God bless us all." The pile of hands dispersed, and Bella and Mrs. Boffin took a good long hug of one another, to the apparent peril of the inexhaustible baby lying staring in Bella's lap. "'But is the story done?' said Bella, pondering. "'Is there no more of it?' "'What more of it should there be, dearie?' returned Mrs. Boffin, full of glee. "'Are you sure you've left nothing out of it?' asked Bella. "'I don't think I have,' said Mrs. Boffin, archly. "'John, dear,' said Bella, "'you're a good nurse. Will you please hold baby?' Having deposited the inexhaustible in his arms with those words, Bella looked hard at Mr. Boffin, who had moved to a table where he was leaning his head upon his hand, with his face turned away, and, quietly settling herself on her knees at his side, and drawing one arm over his shoulder, said, "'Please, I beg your pardon, and I made a small mistake of a word when I took leave of you last. Please, I think you are better, not worse.' than Hopkins. Better, not worse than Dancer. Better, not worse than Blackberry Jones. Better, not worse than any of them. Please, something more,' cried Bella, with an exultant ringing laugh, as she struggled with him, and forced him to turn his delighted face to hers. "'Please, I have found out something not yet mentioned.' "'Please, I don't believe you are a hard-hearted miser at all, "'and please, I don't believe you ever for one single minute were.' At this Mrs. Boffin fairly screamed with rapture, and sat beating her feet upon the floor, clapping her hands, and bobbing herself backwards and forwards like a demented member of some mandarin's family. "'Oh, I understand you now, sir.' cried Bella. I want neither you nor anyone else to tell me the rest of the story. I can tell it to you now, if you'd like to hear it. "'Can you, my dear?' said Mr. Boffin. "'Tell it, then.' "'What?' cried Bella, holding him prisoner by the coat with both hands. "'When you saw what a greedy little wretch you were the patron of, you determined to show her how much misused and misprized riches could do, and often had done, to spoil people, did you? Not caring what she thought of you, and goodness knows that was of no consequence, you showed her, in yourself, the most detestable sides of wealth, saying in your own mind, this shallow creature would never work the truth out of her own weak soul if she had a hundred years to do it in but a glaring instance kept before her may open even her eyes and set her thinking that was what you said to yourself was it sir i never said anything of the sort 
Mr. Boffin declared in a state of the highest enjoyment. "'Then you ought to have said it, sir,' returned Bella, giving him two pulls and one kiss. "'For you must have thought and meant it. You saw that good fortune was turning my stupid head, and hardening my silly heart, was making me grasping, calculating, insolent, insufferable, and you took the pains to be the dearest and kindest finger-post that ever was set up anywhere.' pointing out the road that I was taking, and the end it led to. Confess it, instantly. "'John,' said Mr. Boffin, one broad piece of sunshine from head to foot, "'I wish you'd help me out of this.' "'You can't be heard by counsel, sir,' returned Bella. "'You must speak for yourself. Confess, instantly.' "'Well, my dear,' said Mr. Boffin, "'the truth is, that when we did go in for the little scheme that my old lady has pinted out, I did put it to John, what did he think of going in for some such general scheme as you have pinted out? But I didn't, in any way, so word it, because I didn't, in any way, so mean it. I only said to John, wouldn't it be more consistent, me going in for being a regular brown bear, respecting him, to go in as a regular brown bear all round? Confess this minute, sir said Bella, that you did it to correct and amend me. "'Certainly, my dear child,' said Mr. Boffin. "'I didn't do it to harm you. You may be sure of that. And I did hope it might just hint a caution. Still, it ought to be mentioned, and no sooner had my old lady found out John, and John made known to her, and me, that he had had his eye upon a thankless person, by the name of Silas Wegg. Partly for the punishment of which Wegg, by leading him on, in a very unhandsome and underhanded game that he was playing, them books that you and me bought, so many of together, and, by the by, my dear, he wasn't Blackberry Jones, but Blueberry, was read aloud to me by that person of the name of Silas Wegg aforesaid. Bella, who was still on her knees at Mr. Boffin's feet, gradually sank down into a sitting posture on the ground as she meditated more and more thoughtfully, with her eyes upon his beaming face. "'Still,' said Bella, after this meditative pause, "'there remain two things that I cannot understand. Mrs. Boffin never supposed any part of the change in Mr. Boffin to be real, did she? You never did, did you?' asked Bella, turning to her. "'No,' returned Mrs. Boffin, with a most rotund and glowing negative. "'And yet you took it very much to heart,' said Bella. "'I remember it's making you very uneasy indeed.' God, you see, Mrs. John has a sharp eye, John,' cried Mr. Boffin, shaking his head with an admiring air. "'You're right, my dear. The old lady nearly blowed us into shivers and smithers many times.' "'Why?' asked Bella. "'How did that happen when she was in your secret?' "'Why?' "'It was a weakness in the old lady,' said Mr. Boffin. "'And yet, to tell you the old truth, and nothing but the truth, I'm rather proud of it. "'My dear, the old lady thinks so high of me, as she couldn't bear to see and hear me coming out as a regular brown one. "'Couldn't bear to make believe, as I meant it. "'In consequence of which, we was everlastingly in danger with her.' Mrs. Boffin laughed heartily at herself, but a certain glistening in her honest eyes revealed that she was by no means cured of that dangerous propensity. "'I assure you, my dear,' said Mr. Boffin, "'that on the celebrated day, 
when I made what has since been agreed upon to be my grandest demonstration. I allude to Mew, says the cat, Quack, quack, says the duck, and bow, wow, wow, says the dog. I assure you, my dear, that on that celebrated day, them flinty and unbelieving words hit my old lady so hard on my account that I had to hold her to prevent her running out after you, and defended me by saying I was playing a part. Mrs. Boffin laughed heartily again, and her eyes glistened again and it then appeared not only that in that burst of sarcastic eloquence mr boffin was considered by his two fellow-conspirators to have outdone himself but that in his own opinion it was a remarkable achievement never thought of it afore the moment my dear he observed to bella when john said if he had been so happy as to win your affections and possess your art it come into my head to turn round upon him with win her affections and possess her heart Mew, says the cat, quack, quack, says the duck, and bow, wow, wow, says the dog. I couldn't tell you how it came into my head, or where from, but it had so much the sound of a rasper, that I own to you, it astonished myself. I was awful nigh bursting out a laughing, though, when it made John stare. You said, my pretty, Mrs. Boffin reminded Bella, that there was one other thing you couldn't understand. Oh, yes, cried Bella covering her face with her hands. "'But that I never shall be able to understand, as long as I live. It is how John could love me so, when I so little deserved it, and how you, Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, could be so forgetful of yourselves, and take such pains and trouble to make me a little better, and after all to help him to so unworthy a wife. But I am very, very grateful.' It was John Harmon's turn then. John Harmon now for good, and John Rokesmith for nevermore, to plead with her quite unnecessarily in behalf of his deception, and to tell her over and over again that it had been prolonged by her own winning graces in her supposed station of life. This led on to many interchanges of endearment and enjoyment on all sides in the midst of which the inexhaustible being observed staring in the most imbecile manner on Mrs. Boffin's breast, was pronounced to be supernaturally intelligent as to the whole transaction, and was made to declare to the ladies and Gemplemorums, with a wave of the speckled fist, with difficulty detached from an exceedingly short waist, I have already informed my venerable Ma that I know all about it. Then, said John Harmon, would Mrs. John Harmon come and see her house? and a dainty house it was, and a tastefully beautiful, and they went through it in procession, the inexhaustible on Mrs. Boffin's bosom still staring, occupying the middle station, and Mr. Boffin bringing up the rear. And on Bella's exquisite toilet-table was an ivory casket, and in the casket were jewels the like of which she had never dreamed of, and aloft on an upper floor was a nursery garnished as with rainbows. "'Though we were hard put to it,' said John Harmon, "'to get it done in so short a time.' The house inspected, emissaries removed the inexhaustible, who was shortly afterwards heard screaming among the rainbows, whereupon Bella withdrew herself from the presence and knowledge of Gemplemorums, and the screaming ceased, and smiling peace associated herself with that young olive-branch. "'Come and look in, Noddy.' said Mrs. Boffin to Mr. Boffin. 
Mr. Boffin, submitting to be led on tiptoe to the nursery door, looked in with immense satisfaction, although there was nothing to see but Bella, in amusing state of happiness, seated in a low chair upon the hearth, with her child in her fair young arms, and her soft eyelashes shading her eyes from the fire. "'It looks as if the old man's spirit had found rest at last, don't it?' said Mrs. Boffin. "'Yes, old lady.' "'And as if his money had turned bright again after a long, long rust in the dark, and was at last a beginning to sparkle in the sunlight?' "'Yes, old lady.' "'And it makes a pretty and a promising picture, don't it?' "'Yes, old lady.' But aware at the instant of a fine opening for a point, Mr. Boffin quenched that observation in this, delivered in the grisliest growling of the regular brown bear. "'A pretty and a hopeful picture. Mew! Quack, quack! Bow-wow!' And then trotted silently downstairs, with his shoulders in a state of the liveliest commotion. End of Book Four, Chapter Thirteen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun—yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.